0: Yes We are a small but mighty crowd this morning Welcome Welcome to the June gloom that keeps on giving I know it's summer because my five minute drive to work is now 18 minutes I don't understand why all those people want to just come down one way Isn't there multiple ways to the beach Is everyone has to just come down the 55 It's all right, we know we have other ways in, and I'm trying my other paths in, and trying to be excited about the fact that I finished my remodel. I survived eight weeks, oh, there's a hum, eight weeks with my family in the front living room with all of our kitchen, dining room, and everything in one small path. (laughs) Isn't it kind of weird, like Father's Day, it's Father's Day or whatever, like, I've been looking at that kitchen since we moved in like five and a half years ago and thought, ooh, this looks a little old. Uh, we pulled one of the drawers during the demo and it said 1976 on it. Last time it was remodeled when they actually used still wood, which was nice, but they used wood that was like two pieces of paper thick, so it just wasn't really built to last. I knew that when I went to chop something on the cutting board and it split the cutting board in half, that the time was probably over. Uh, then the sink began to leak, leak underneath and that created a where you put a big giant pan that you weren't using anymore. Good use of one of those, Right and then we realized that we had an unsafe kitchen when parts of the countertop started falling off. But I don't know, like, uh, I feel like this section in acts and a remodel has a lot in common. It's like, if you're kind of used to overlooking something, you get used to it, right? And if, you're, if you just kind of make peace with it, that's just the way that it is, and it's always been like that, and it'll always be like that, then maybe you don't do something about it. But in the same sense, that first time Peter looked out and realized they were mocking Jesus or mocking the early church or just mocking people in general because they didn't understand, and he decided to speak out, he initiated something. And for me, that first swing of the hammer in my kitchen and the cabinet door flying off and a giant smile on my face because I really enjoy the demo side of kitchen remodeling, um, you put something in motion. But now I feel like we're heading towards chapter, the end of Chapter 5 today, And heading towards chapter 6, and we're like, the church has gone from like this birth stage, really exciting stage, to kind of like, now it's in these forming stages. And I feel like there's really good encouragement for us in that, because they're going to survive last week. Last week was a rough week for the church, and it was a fabulous week for us. I'm really excited about the baptisms. Um, keep praying for that other family that's out there and had some very interesting conversations with them and still excited about the potential of firing that tub up one more time here very soon. Um, but the church has to go through these kind of growth stages to get onto the next project. And the next project for them is, okay, we lost some congregational members last week and we lost them because they decided to lie to God. And what that actually meant to the church was either Are we going to be like broken over this and kind of stop and go stagnant or are we going to accept that God is holy and righteous just as much as God is loving and kind and press on because there's always work to do and so making consideration for the fact that Ananias and Sapphira are no longer with the church, the church is going to press on and so as they press on today they're going to find out there's going to be another need for something and this week I marked the passage Biblical Courage. And I think that based on what already happened back in chapter 4, which we'll definitely readdress, something happened in chapter 4 for them when they were told not to do something. They were approached from the world around them and said, whatever you're doing, especially that in the name of Jesus stuff, that has to come to a halt. And something happened in that prayer that they asked for, for boldness, that then gave them the ability to not only face what they're about to face in this chapter today, but... um, I mean, I don't know about you, but we definitely are probably getting closer to a time in our American lives where the actual worship of Jesus has probably never been under threat like it, like it has been in the past. So I feel like this is a great passage for us this morning, and, and also the consideration this is like, for Ananias and Sapphira, they learned something about God, and for us last week, if you didn't learn something, is that if you understand how holy God is and you understand the price it means to be a follower of Christ then do you also understand the commitment that it takes to be biblically courageous? Because if you're not biblically courageous, then this reiteration of the prayer that happened in chapter four and what's gonna happen to the church is important because you're gonna be overcome by fear rather than learning how fear plays a role in our our everyday life. And so happy Father's Day to all of you fathers out there. Thank you for all the projects that you've started and left undone so that the next generation can finish them. But thank you for the time and energy, Fathers, in particular, that you've poured into us, the next generation of young men, that then get to raise the torch and try to aspire to you. And also on behalf of the older generation in our church, it's been such a blessing for me. Thank you guys for being so faithful. Thank you, Merv and Ben and all the guys that have just set incredible bars for the men of this church to look up to and to aspire to. Uh, may everything that happens in the church this morning continue to bring honor and glory to God. So let me pray. Father God, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the opportunity each Father's Day and Mother's Day, too, any opportunity to thank those parents that you have given us, the, uh, the opportunity to realize that Proverbs 22 is quite some challenge for them to train up a child in, in the way that they should go. And there's many, many challenges along the way, and so we're so grateful that there's this long-term commitment to this child that's been raised, and this morning Coming into church and seeing some of the babies and hearing some of the children in the church, uh, it's just a reminder that you know it's it's a beautiful thing to have a child, but it is a long-term commitment to try to to show them and guide them and, and lead them in, in a way that will make them see the clear path that, that it is to, to salvation. And so for last week, for the testimonies that we're giving, and then this week for the opportunity to speak your word, and, and even this morning if somebody's listening, Father. Um, for some reason they choose to listen this morning, I pray that your word would go out and be that source of encouragement. It would be that source of motivation, like I was talking about with my kitchens, just something that we see that just says, you know what, I, I I don't have to put up with that any longer. If today is the day, then I'm gonna knock that old cabinet door off and I'm gonna trust you, Lord, to give me courage and be bold about remodeling my spiritual faith. And so, Father, I pray this message this morning does that. And we ask these things in your son's precious and holy name, amen. So like I said last week, they had a situation where they had to overcome fear, but it wasn't the fear of men, it was the fear of God. And remember, if it's the fear of God and not the fear of men, like Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord produces wisdom. And if you have wisdom coming out of a situation, then the results of that was rather than the church being divided or being kind of thwarted in its growth, the church was healed, and the church was kind of centraled and focused, and now all of a sudden it continues in its growth. And any time you're continuing your growth, they're going to continue to be in an attack. And the way that they did that was just to kind of narrow the scope of what they talked about. They just continued to focus on this, that the risen Lord Jesus Christ was boldly proclaimed. And when I talk about boldly being proclaimed, I can't help but think about, um, you know, some of the people that are out there now in countries where even saying the name of Jesus might cost you your life. We still have that privilege here in the States where we can still say Jesus. Matter of fact, this week on coming home, the freeway was packed up, so I took Bristol back to my house from the five freeway, and it seemed like every street corner had some kind of event going on, whether it was flower sales or fruit sales or evangelism from some of the churches that were in Santa Ana. Everybody had something to say, and so there's still kind of the the opportunity in America to go out there and speak, but in other countries, Uh, That kind of boldness could result in some serious bodily harm, and yet for these people that were hearing this, that that were hearing that Jesus was risen, they were continuing to come, and so the congregation continued to grow. But the result of that is a new power struggle, and now the church is going to face the power struggle of the day as the religious leaders. So the religious leaders are the high priests, uh, the Sanhedrin, and the Sadducees. And um, I always remember that from school that Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe correctly in Jesus. So if that helps you, feel free to use that. But um, when it comes to, like, understanding the hierarchy of Jewish kind of religion, we're going to get to that a little bit, because part of the passage will talk about high priest, Sanhedrin, and Sadducees. So as soon as I read the passage, I'll come back and help some of you who like that kind of clarity, um, because it's good to kind of understand. The goal of this initial passage, I'm in five... Uh, 17 through, I think I'm going to read through 40. What you're going to see today is the church in Jerusalem is growing as a, a real power struggle. And what's going to happen is the religious leaders are basically going to try to come in and say, that's it. Whatever you guys are saying, whatever you guys are doing, we've already warned you once, you have not listened. So now the repercussion for proclaiming the name of Jesus is going to come with a serious, a serious kibosh. So let's read and see what the religious leaders try to do to the early church starting in verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with his associates, the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. We'll talk quite a bit about that in a minute. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. And 21, upon hearing this, they now entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even the Senate, the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came back in did not find them in the prison. They returned and reported back in verse 23. We found the prison house. It was locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened it up, we found no one inside. And when the captain, the temple guard, and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about that as to what to do and what to come of this. Verse 25, and then someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeds to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of what the people might have done, including stoning them. When they had brought them in, they stood before the council and then the high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. 31, he is the one whom God exalted to the his high, his high right hand as a prince, as a savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. But God has given to those who will obey him. And when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamil, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up at the council and gave orders to put them out for a short period of time. And he said to them, men of Israel, Take care, you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, and he was claiming to be someone, with a group of about 400 men who joined him. But he was killed, and all those following were dispersed, and it came to nothing. Then, after him, a man, Judas of Galilee, he rose up in the days of the census and drove away people, and people followed him, and he too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is an action of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you might be fighting against God. In verse 40, they took his advice and, calling the apostles in. They flogged them. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus again, and then they released them. So this is a pretty powerful passage. It's a lot of information and Traditionally, I like to just keep the passages a little smaller, but I want the whole story to kind of be read so you can understand it from start to finish. And I think just starting off here in verse 17, the key for me to explain to you once again is the idea that this religious system, the the Sanhedrin, okay, the Sanhedrin is kind of like our Supreme Court today, right? It's it's the ruling power. So within the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees are kind of like the operating law of that high court. And so what they're trying to do is make sure that Jerusalem in particular, Israel as a nation, stays true to what they believe is their their understanding of faith. And that anyone who comes against that faith is going to be strictly enforced by them in whatever means, ways, or powers they decide to use. So along with that Sanhedrin is the high priest. Now the high priest is going to be like the acting voice of that group. And so this particular group is Ananias, and some say Caiaphas is involved as well. And the problem even with this is that Ananias and his sons had already kind of parlayed the power and already created kind of a situation where the opinion of that particular group was already kind of skewed, that it was more like a power play from one family. Regardless of that, the Sanhedrin are considered almost, I think most of the 90% of the Sanhedrin are Sadducees. And the Sadducees are kind of rising up here because they're the religious authority. So if anyone's going to teach, if anyone's going to share, if anyone's going to kind of lead the nation, it needs to be them. Remember, it's kind of a, a power struggle in the modern day sense. And yet these people that are leading are both untrained and uneducated to them. Remember, that was kind of the opening line about these men of Galilee. They're untrained and uneducated. Yet every time they speak, people follow. And people are starting to come from the surrounding cities as they hear about what's happening And not only are they following, but they're really starting to dig into what they believe. So the Sadducees are saying, hey, look, we have specific laws that we believe. And if you look at their theology, it's kind of like, I would say, liberal theology. It's more of the Roman theology. And it has two key points, very interesting key points. Number one, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Okay. So if they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead... And that's kind of a specific point. We're going to see how that plays out here because the second thing they don't believe in is they don't believe in angels. So they have a liberal theology that's more Roman based than Jewish based. And the very two things that they hold to kind of premiere do not believe in resurrection and do not believe in angels. So when we look at the account of what actually happens, it's no wonder why they're jealous. People are coming from all over to hear these heretical people. And what are the heretical people teaching? Jesus just rose from the dead, and an angel just released us from prison. Now, I don't know about you, but I I find humor sometimes when I read God's word, right? I mean, it seems interesting to me. The church is just being birthed. I mean, this is really the birth of the first group of people that are following, and this is the primary controversy. They're Jewish in nature, and they're going against the very Jewish laws that have been designed to kind of hold them back. And the Lord is continuing to address Israel very specific and very matter-of-fact and very straightforward to the very issues that they hold. Okay, you don't believe in resurrection of the dead? Here's Jesus. And not only is he going to show up, but he's going to speak to 500 people, and he's going to be here for 40 days, right? He's going to turn around this group that's kind of ragtag and run back and hidden in their nooks and crannies, and he's going to re-energize them to the point that. The spirit of God is going to fall on them, and then in the first movement, the church is going to go from a hundred and twenty five hundred, maybe, to three thousand plus men and women and children. So they have no choice but to be jealous because being a powering person, the the Jewish council, they want that power. They want to be in control of people. So all of a sudden, the controversy is on. It's absolutely in their face, and the Lord's not apologizing. He's just saying, "Look, this is what happened. An angel released them, and I, Jesus is risen from the dead." So. When they when they saw that situation, what did they what their response was in verse 18? They laid hands on them. So I don't picture this as being kind of like a a very cordial thing. I picture them as like laying hands on them. I get a chance to ride with the police. And I can tell you there's a big difference between a non-confrontational stop and a stop where you lay hands on people. Um, traditionally you only lay hands on people when there's some kind of resistance or some kind of Uh, energy that's kind of been put into that especially like after a chase or something like that there's going to be um, energy in doing that and so since these people continue to do something that's in opposition to them they feel the need to lay hands on them and kind of show everybody and silence everyone we are the ruling authority and power now watch us work and what do they think they're ruling authority of well they think they're the ruling authority because part of what they did was trying to hang jesus part of what they tried to do was silence them by saying hey look we are the ones that have control over your destiny, and we tell you that Jesus is not real. Matter of fact, that's why we hung him on the tree. Yet all of a sudden, this angel shows up, opens up the gates, leaves the whole prison secured and locked with the guards still standing in place, and sets him free and gives them three commands in verse 20. Now tell me what you hear of when you hear these three commands. Go, stand, and speak. Okay? Go, make, baptize and teach right so one of the things i want to encourage you is that when the bible talks about an angel an angel the word angel means something it means messenger so the messenger can only bring you a message from its boss right so it's either a message from god or it's a message from the other side and that's why the bible says if an angel comes with a message other than what the word of god already says then you're not to listen to it and that's really good for you if you're out there studying apologetics Because two of the other major religions that are out there are religions that come from a conversation with an angel, right? So that angel should only be bringing a message from God or from the devil because one-third of the angelic realm fell with the devil and the two-thirds remain with the Lord. So those messengers will bring that message, either the message of what God has said and follow in line with that, or they will bring a different message. So regardless of who the angel is, I think one of them is an account from Gabriel, for seven years. um, And you can look up the religion that has that. And the other one is uh, another angel identified by their actual faith. But either way, those are different messages. And the results of those different messages comes up with a new understanding of how God's word is. So caution to those who will listen. The word stand there is pretty clear. It's the same concept that's throughout the Bible. It's always stand firm. In other words, we hold fast with what God's word says. So if you're going to be challenged by the world, if the, word, if the word of God is going to be challenged in your life, what do you need to consider? You need to consider what it takes for you to biblically have courage to hold fast, okay? So let's say this, you can't go to church, okay? This is gonna be something that goes against Hebrews 10, which says don't forsake the gathering, right? If we have opportunities in life to see uh, the rulers and powers and authorities over us begin to speak some kind of truth, one of the measuring parameters that we will have is does it ask us to go against the word of God? If it does, we have to have courage to hold fast in that. Now, the only way they got that courage, I told you it came from Acts, so I want to give you the verse again that it came from and reread this. This is crucial if you don't have biblical courage to remember Acts 4, 29. So this is three Sundays ago. They were up against it. They were being told the same thing. Do not speak the name of Jesus. And they prayed, Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness okay so if you're coming up against it if you're coming up an opportunity for you to have to hold fast that the spirit of god is showing you something revealing something to you and you're feeling that sense of being kind of overwhelmed by it the first step that you want to do is kind of purge yourself of all the noise and everything like that pray focus to the lord and say lord you know the threats that are coming against me you know the situation that's coming against your kingdom i pray for great boldness to stand fast and hold fast and proclaim the name of jesus okay it's going to give you what you need and why we know that's true is because verse 21 says as soon as they were freed from jail as soon as the angel gave them a parameter they entered the temple and began to preach now they were just arrested in the temple for preaching right? This happens time and time again throughout the New Testament. You see people who are doing something and something horrible happens to them, and then they have this opportunity to kind of be restored by God. And as soon as they're restored, what do they do? They go right back to it. So for those of you who feel like, you know, if you've done something before and it's resulted in you kind of being attacked, and now your response is, I'm not doing that again. May this passage be a source of encouragement for you. If it's of God, if God's called you to do it, if there's a clear path on why you're to be doing it, then the results of what happens every time you do it is not up to you. You do it because it's the right thing to do and God has called you to do. The results is up to him. And I made a question here because I started getting overwhelmed by this. Think about this. So when we, they're going back into the temple to preach, they know what's gonna happen, right? They know that there's gonna probably be serious repercussions because there was already repercussions before. So I'm going to ask you this question, are we saved so that we can go to heaven or are we saved to bring heaven to earth? Yes. Because I think that has a lot to do with how you see these kind of conundrums, how you see life, right? If you think my salvation is kind of like um, monopoly, I got the get out of jail free card, right? I'm gonna just put that in my back pocket and I'm gonna play the game of life as I wanna do it. And eventually when I get in that situation, I'm gonna draw it out. That's one way of thinking how our salvation works. I think what this passage is teaching and showing so clearly in the early churches, they didn't have that mindset. They played that card every day. They're like, boom, whatever God's gonna do, whatever, however God's gonna do it today, then he's gonna do it. In the meantime, I don't know about tomorrow, but I got today. So I'm gonna go out there and live boldly today. And in order for me to do it, I have to remind myself what I prayed for. Lord, you know the threats against me. You know the threats against us. Help me to bring heaven to earth because limited time offer to offer that salvation. So praying for boldness does what? It gives them the courage to do it. And verse 22 tells them that the high priest, all the Sadducees, they, they're not going to have that. So they're going to go out and look for him. But when they go to look for him and they don't find him, that's a problem. That's going to be a, specifically a problem for the captain of the guards And verse 23 tells us they come back after looking for him. The building is both locked and secured, and the guards are standing, but there's nobody inside. I mean, these early miracles, these powerful things that happen that God does this, I mean, how can you not know? If you're a guard guarding uh, prisoners and they get out, traditionally in Roman law, if you let somebody out and you were guarding them, that would cost you your life, or you would then get the penalty of whatever they had. And yet they're standing out there, and far as they're concerned, everything about the day and the no- and the night was completely normal. They have no idea. Uh, verse 24 says, "What is their response? Perplexed." right? And I think that's so encouraging for me as a believer. It's like sometimes we have to just trust that God is smarter and he's going to overwhelm our enemies with whatever he needs to overwhelm them. If we have a call and that call may result in some form of injury or malice or hardship for us, we have to get past that and just put our head down and go do the act that God has given us. And then in that act, we don't fight. We simply hold fast and we stand firm saying, Lord, i'm going i'm standing and i'm speaking the name of jesus now the results of whatever this action is is up to you and i can't imagine what the captain's thinking because his job's on the line maybe his life is on the line he needs to arrest these guys right away and someone else comes back to him and said you know what i think the guys you're looking for that got arrested in the temple yesterday yeah they're in the temple what are they doing they're preaching I don't know, church, early on in, in life, I mean, if you get arrested for preaching, let's say Costa Mesa decides to post a new law and you go stand out on Newport Boulevard and I've seen that one guy down there by the old Mimi's, he's got his sign or whatever. If that actually resulted in jail time, if you woke up the next morning and you had the opportunity to rethink your game plan, you probably were rethinking that whole strategy, right? You're like, oh, the jail's not, I, don't, I know the guy's in the jail. I mean, it's not a friendly, it's not a warm, inviting place, Right? But the point of it is, is that that's what God has called you to do. For, for some reason, if that's the method that God has given you to go share, then when it's a clear path and the Lord says go, in this particular, the angel remind them go, they go. And I love that because they're not afraid of people. Matter of fact, when they go to pick them up and they find them actually preaching, who's actually afraid this time? The guards are afraid because the people have gathered around them and the people are supporting what's being said and the people are responding to the invoking of Jesus' name. And now the guards who are trying to arrest these people who were in jail are now afraid that the people will then stone them for taking them out of the temple. Isn't that a great role reversal? We talk about power and authority and we wrestle not against those things seen, but I feel like this is so exciting for the church to just realize okay, we were worried about this, we saw it kind of going this way, and now it's actually playing out completely different. They're brought before the Sanhedrin, they're still going to have that moment, but they they finished speaking whatever truth they needed to the people, the people got that, and now verse 27 says they're under this kind of scrutiny, and he says to them, we gave you strict orders not to preach in his name now. I want to help kind of clarify. So church, this is definitely something for us. We want to obey the rules and regulations of the land when we can. God has ordained uh, the authorities that are over us. But if that authority should then give us a command that is in direct opposition to the word of God, and that path is both clear and identifiable from the word of God, here is the kind of reasoning that we need to look for to say that what is the response? The response is they were willing to say, That's what you believe, and that's what you think, and we're trying to respect that, but this is what God has called us to do, and so we have to continue. And then they said, Well, not only can you not continue, but in continuing, are you trying to bring this man's blood upon us? Now, once again, I told you that the Sadducees are kind of following Roman law, so I'll read you kind of what it says here. In Roman law, if you wrongfully charge someone of a crime, then you become legally liable to receive the punishment of that crime. So since Pilate knew that he had no real reason to kill Jesus, and he was the ruling Roman authority, he said, then I rinse my hands of this, and I don't have that. They willingly, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, they willingly accepted the blood of Christ, saying, he's not real, like Judas, like Thomas of Gal, these other people that have gone before, he's not real, so we'll take that because we believe he's not real. Now that's very interesting to me because in as much as they're willing to take the blood of Christ upon them and say he's not real, they're not willing to mention in any way, shape, or form the fact that an angel broke them out of jail or how they even got there. There's no mentioning, no questioning, and not even any implications, which means once again, what? If they brought that up on top of them proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, it would just be going directly in opposition to everything they had been taught. So because of that, the Sanhedrin are up against it. They're up against it, and they're kind of feeling a little bit of a pinch. And this is going to be a push of authority, and so this is where you want to go. Okay, Peter, this is what's going to happen. Verse 29, Peter responds to them, hey, the high priest is just a human being. Okay, He does not represent God to us. So we understand what you're saying, and we respect that. But we must obey the true God over you. So that's a good kind of parameter for us what when it comes to kind of obeying man over god when do we have to obey god over man like i said the order here is to not preach the name of jesus a direct order do not proclaim the name of jesus christ that is in direct opposition to what the word of god says go make baptize and teach or their primary one from the angel go hold fast and proclaim the name of jesus so they answer, okay, well, you have to do what man says, but we have to answer to what God says. Now, if that helps you, great. If it doesn't help you, that's fine. But we've prayed for boldness. We know the Holy Spirit has made this perfectly clear. So that's what we're gonna do. We now have biblical courage to hold fast. And on top of that, when he's done with his response, he then turns to them in verse 30 and he accuses them. And by the way, when you put Jesus to death on the cross, our father raised him up. Now, this is an interesting kind of conversation to say, our Father, because remember, they think they represent true Jesus, right? They think they represent true God. And now they're delineating from them and saying, you do not believe and you do not see in a clear path. Let us explain to you, you put him on a cross. Matter of fact, you put him on a cross for a reason. Here's another interesting fact about a cross Um, from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 21 23 proclaims this, a hanged man on a tree was in fact believed to be cursed by god according to the jewish law so the fact that they hung jesus on a tree meant not only did they not see him as the messiah but they were trying to say a curse to all the people who were then following saying we don't believe he's speaking the truth and since we don't believe he's speaking the truth we're letting you know he's a curse to all of you Yet the reality of that was God not only raised him, but then as Peter's proclaiming, he exalted him to the right hand. Now, once again, in Jewish law, being exalted to the right hand is a position of power, authority, and respect. saying everything about what you thought was gonna happen, everything about what you believed, it's not true. He is seated at the right hand, and he is restored to his right place. And he is the only one, through the power of the Holy Spirit now, who has the authority at the highest level to forgive Israel. I know they didn't mic drop back then because they didn't have mics, but I can only imagine Peter just like boom, you know Like seriously guys I understand what you believe and I understand what you think but I mean That's it. That's the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me god What do you want to do with it? Like i'm doing what i've been called to do I'm an eyewitness to what i've seen and I have no choice but to do it And verse 33, it tells us the response of those who are in opposition to God. They've been in opposition to God from the very beginning, church, and there would probably be people that were going to be in opposition to God to the very end, and the results of hearing the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth is they were cut to the quick, and the Bible says they were furious. Okay? Furious is not a good response to God's word. Okay? I can understand humility. If God's word speaks to you and the result is kind of an overwhelming sense of humbleness, like I'm not worthy to hear God's word, especially at this capacity. But a furious response probably tells me that it's more pride. And really, the beginning of this whole thing was power and authority. And now their power and authority has been completely challenged. And they're once again faced with the person who's untrained and uneducated is now educating them on how the real God actually works. And I made a quick little asterisk note, and then I put, "You and know, that's because salvation requires an obedience to God that's all in, right? has that gone in the world we live in today, this kind of all-in mindset that if this is what it takes to be a follower of Christ, then I'm all in, you know? We're in when it's good. We're in when it's safe. We're in when it's uh, kind of in the crowd, but what about when it's in when it's potentially dangerous, this next little segment i just want to reread it this idea that gamel G- has something very positive to say it's very interesting to me how quickly the, the sadducees and the sanhedrin are interested in hearing someone else because they've just been put in their place by an uneducated person so now a pharisee is going to speak which they don't believe in the pharisees they don't believe as the pharisees the, uh, the essenes or the zealots they believe differently from them Yet, all of a sudden, he's going to speak, and they decide to listen. This is the sequence verses 34 through 39. He starts talking about this kind of very matter-of-fact, pragmatic way of seeing things. In other words, Gamal says, hey, if it's working and it seems right, then probably it is right. And so I want to just remind you, there's other people like Jesus who have come and gone and they've had no lasting effects. Remember Theodos and Judas of Galilee. So they're already gone. So chances are, if this guy's not real, he'll be gone too. So just stay away from these guys. Let them run their own little course. You know, let them have their own little time and do whatever it is. It's no big deal. And then men will ultimately overthrow them because if they're they're not and they're actually speaking of the true God, then why would we want to be fighting against God? Now, pragmatic thinking is interesting because pragmatic thinking makes people feel good about what they say, right? Because it sounds reasonable, right? But is there anything really reasonable about what the cross proclaims? Is there anything really reasonable that there's none righteous, right? Is there anything really reasonable that all sin is the same in the eyes of God? Is there anything reasonable about sin of a mass murder versus someone who thinks about murder being the same? So pragmatism is just one of those things where people speak it because it sounds good and they like to hear themselves, but it's not good for a believer. It's not wise. Unfortunately, they're kind of in a desperate situation, so what's their response? Verse 40 says, not only did they take their advice, not only did they take his advice, but they decided to take it to the ultimate Roman end, okay? Like I said, uh, Sadducees have this kind of Roman understanding, and with a Roman understanding, they now have the opportunity to publicly kind of create a humility of these guys So this is what they decided to do, and they flogged them. Flogging was the most brutal and feared method of trauma in the old world. It produced deep wounds that could even lead to death. Jewish law had a maximum of 40 lashes, but Roman law provided no limits. Matter of fact, Flavius Josephus offers accounts of flagellation in the Bible conducted in Palestine where the strokes that were delivered came with such strength that it actually exposed the victim's internal organs. So they wanted to really let him know, okay, we've already told you what we think, and we've already explained to you that we are the power and the authority. We appreciate what you said, but you know what? We need to let everyone else know, okay, that that's not gonna work around here. And if you continue to proclaim the name of Jesus, this is now waiting for you. And so they they, they, they did this horrible thing. Now, a lot of people have spent a lot of time talking about what a cat of nine tails is and how it's designed to inflict pain. Um, I don't know about you, but I mean, Today, I mean, maybe the most severe thing that might happen for being a believer is people might, you know, if you put a post of a Bible verse or something, somebody might say something. I mean, maybe we put a bumper sticker on, and we, you know, it's weird how we try to find little ways to be a Christian, and we're still worried about the repercussions of it, but I don't think these guys had any of that concern because there was only one way to be a Christian back then, and that was to live and speak in such a way that let everyone know that you were a believer. And the repercussions of that, to have this be a potential repercussion I mean, what are the repercussions to a church that's willing to speak the name of Jesus at this cost? And I think that's why the church continued to grow. I think part of our DNA is we have this incredible historical root in us because um, Fox wrote a book called the, uh, the Book of Martyrs. And all of a sudden, the Bible and this early church had this idea like people were probably gonna die for faith. And so soon enough, Stephen will be the first one to die for his faith. But every single person who gave his life okay, for faith now has this opportunity to realize something. There comes a great cost in life, but in the same sense, I mentioned Ananias and Sapphira being believers last week. A couple of you came up and sent me some interesting texts and emails. Uh, Maybe that led to people talking about Judas and his situation with returning the money and feeling remorse. Remember, there's only one unforgivable sin, church, okay? One unforgivable sin. You have to blaspheme the Holy Spirit to recount your faith. Otherwise, sinning and making good sins or bad sins they, they all count one right a good decision or bad. if it's a sin it's a sin it still counts one and so I think part of what the church was learning here was the value of life and death okay life and death it's already been established for you to be born he knew you before you was we were born he knit you together in your mother's womb he knows the hairs on your head and for some of us that's good because those are gone right so he still knows how many days you have left So there's no reason to worry about your birth or your death because that's already known to him. What's not known is what will your life and death be about, right? Sometimes it takes a funeral for us to actually see what someone's life is about. And a life that's well-lived, boy, a funeral, or we call them now a, a service of remembrance, right? What a way to remember somebody's life when you talk about all the different ways they have had effect on people. So these guys being beaten publicly for this whole thing, it's like even if it leads to their death. What they're saying is there's a way that we can live that becomes inspirational to other believers. And just like giving a testimony before you get baptized is not an easy thing to do, it's a way to inspire other believers and remind them, hey, we gotta go, we gotta hold fast, and we gotta boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. And the reality for doing this, you know, are these guys being beaten and flogged, does, does the church just shut up and go away finally? Because they, this is the second time they're being told directly, do not proclaim the name of Jesus. Is that the kibosh that, that was, you know, with the, once again, what they thought was going to happen, was that the results? It's not the results, because the world does not have the final say. Matter of fact, beaten, battered, bruised, and walking away, God still has the final say, and God allows his children to speak boldly and courageously to all those around them, and verses 41 through 42 conclude with this. They went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name, and every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. Now, church, I don't know about you, but the last time I rejoiced after a good beating was, let's see, I was probably 12 years old, maybe 11 the last time my dad beat me. I don't know if I ever rejoiced after any beating. I think I rejoiced the day my mom took the spoons. Did your mom do that? Was your mom a wooden spoon guy and do it. I remember breaking a generation of my mom's wooden ladles and that, that kind of came to it. But still, I don't think there's ever been any rejoicing in my life. I can honestly think, I know I was paddled. I was the last generation to be paddled at my high school. Thank you for my Capo Valley Christian High School and graduating class of 1983. But we, I think we were the last actual generation to be paddled for talking during chapel I know the female teacher that gave me that paddle had a lot of rejoicing that she was doing to present me with that paddle because I had tormented her for four years in her art class. Um, Either way, I'm still trying to think of that time in my life where I have rejoiced over some form of beating upon me. And you know what? I don't think I've ever had the privilege of saying that. now obviously being a follower in christ and there's good days and bad days maybe some of my migraine brothers and sisters and other things the stress of carrying the load of a church the stress of kind of dealing with some of the counseling or whatever there's times in where you kind of feel like you're trying to carry that load with people but i mean to this level this early on in the church and we're in chapter five this early on in the church for these guys remember it's peter right it's these guys walking away and they're rejoicing They're considering themselves worthy not to suffer, but to suffer the same kind of shame that Jesus went through, right? To be put in that same category. This is something that happened to our Savior. This is something that happened to our Lord. And he survived, it, and he took this for us, and now we can take this. Uh, I think that's probably the reason why that so many of us live daily kind of in the survival mode rather than the thriving mode. Right? It's because we, we just don't realize the courage and the strength that we actually have in the Spirit, in the, in the spirit of God. I mean, it's the same Spirit that was available then is the same Spirit that's available right now. So we have that same opportunity to tap into that same kind of courage. And maybe that's what we're going to need. Maybe the world is going to continue to grow more hostile. Maybe people are going to grow more and more liberal. I mean, like I said this week, there was a lot of really weird things that happened from my beloved sports world to many different things that really kind of made me feel like, okay, they're cannibalizing my golf, they're cannibalizing my baseball team, they're cannibalizing... What's left for a believer to actually watch and enjoy, right? It's all being cannibalized right in front of us. It's like, because... In this life, you will have trouble. But in this life, if you want to take biblical courage, the only way that you can take it every day is to boldly pray, Lord, you know the threats of my enemies. You know the threats of the world around me. And the way that the church survived in the beginning was, if it results in some kind of hostility or animosity towards me for boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus, then so be it. I'm not, mar- I'm not going crazy here and saying, bring it on, right? This is not masochism. I'm not saying bring it on for the sake of bringing it on. I'm simply saying that I have to follow God over following men. The high priest is not our God, right? Whatever the high priest of the land is, is not our God. And they can speak whatever they want to speak. And I will do everything in my power to obey the laws of the land. But when those laws of the land usurp the authority of what God has commanded me to do, then a line has been drawn in the sand. And not by me, I have a responsibility to follow. Ultimately, church, the bottom line is, is what can biblical courage allow you to do right now that you're not doing is to teach and preach the name of Jesus every day. Like, I don't know, I just, I I think I have to say certain things over and over again. How is it possible that 85, 90% of people who professed believers will never lead someone to the Lord in their lives? How is it 80% of the church will never lead one person to the Lord? How is that a win for us? How is that even doing faith? I mean, like I said, going back to the initial question, was the, was the, when we got saved, was the results of our salvation something that we did or something that the Spirit of God exposed to us? Okay, the Spirit of God exposed that to us. We couldn't even be saved of our own volition, and now we've been saved, and now we realize what the cross actually means, and it's not some kind of curse upon the Lord. It's, a, it's retribution from the Lord to say, they, this is what they intended, but this is what I've given you. Now, with that salvation, what does that entitle us? You know, is it get out of jail in my last breath? Is it get out of jail when everything's over, or is it oh, it's get out of jail today? Whatever happens today, whatever I gotta go do to go, to stand, to hold fast and speak the name of Jesus, then that's what I gotta go do today. In my job, in my house, in my marriage. Well, my marriage is falling apart. So how can I proclaim you know proclaim the name of Jesus by my marriage? Okay, get counseling. Find someone who's biblically based and not psychobabble-based, and get someone who's biblically based, and take a big deep breath, and look at somebody in the eye and say, you know what? I've wronged you. You've wronged me. We've wronged each other. Okay, I'm sorry. Somebody started to put it in motion. I'm sorry. If we don't offer forgiveness to one another, then it causes a problem with the forgiveness we're going to get from God, right? Someone take that first step. Someone be biblically courageous, because the reality is, if your household is not under the authority of God, then whose authority are you under? See, we're all under an authority, and so under that authority is the umbrella that provides the protection for the life that you live in. I'm just saying, church, I understand the authority that man has in my life, but that's not the ultimate authority that I answer to. Man is not my high priest. My high priest is God, and my high priest is Jesus. He paid a price to be that, and so my wounds should not separate me from my Savior. My wounds should reunite me, it should unite me, it should connect me, it should, it should draw me close to the fact that whatever happens to me, if the Lord allows that to happen and, and to, can be used for his glory, then so be it. One final question, and we'll be done for today. When was the last time you suffered for the name of Jesus? Are you even considering or are you willing to suffer for the cause of faith today? I mean, if, if avoiding suffering, if avoiding pain, if avoiding spiritual issues is a high priority in your life, and that's what you make, to, uh, you know, today my goal is to avoid any spiritual conflict. What are you actually doing by kind of setting that as the parameter and the precedent in your life? Like I said, you drive home and, and you see your neighbors out front, and the goal is to get to your garage door so you can open it and close that garage door so you can avoid any kind of interaction with the people that god has placed around you i mean if your goal is to avoid all that then how are you able to proclaim this biblically speaking this boldness this courageousness that god gave the early church i think the world desperately needs us i think the world desperately needs that hope that's in you right now that they're saying well we're not finding it out here so where are we going to find it from if you want to hold fast with joy, if you want to be able to consider it all joy, you, be, you need to have the perspective of how it all works because Romans 8 tells us how it all works, right? All things work together for who? For those who trust God, right? I mean, we, there's, a, there's an understanding that God's word gives us and yet we kind of get a little bit away from it and then all of a sudden we lose perspective. If you want things to be able to be considered all things joy, then you need to remind yourself of what the early church did. And the early church simply said this, we prayed the last time we were up against it, Lord, you know the threats, give us boldness, and it's carried us through to this point. Here we are again, and now we're gonna be flogged for it. We're gonna do the same thing that we did in the beginning. There's no new things under the sun. Solomon proved this, right? Read Psalms, read Proverbs. No new thing under the sun. We're not trying to find something new and fancy, and we can go out there and recreate the wheel. It's what we have is what we need is God's word. It says there's nothing new, okay? Okay hold fast to what we have it's precious it's been paid for with a very severe price hold fast and proclaim the name of jesus and let the results be something that the lord is responsible for next week the church is going to face another issue in chapter 6 And matter of fact, all the way through chapter 8, it's going to be all of the different scenarios and issues that the church faces and how they continue to overcome them. And I want you to be here for that, and I want you to be encouraged by that. And if you're here this morning and you didn't know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then there's no reason for you to leave this building without making consideration. What do you need to do this morning? You need to stop simply and acknowledge the fact that Jesus has been standing at the door of your life from the very beginning that the Spirit of God has been reminding you that there's a way that seems odd to you and different to you, but it is a way that is different, and the only way that way can be the way, the truth, and the life is for you to physically invite Jesus in. Receive forgiveness of your sins, which he paid for on that cross, and receive forgiveness of your sins and know today that Jesus truly is as he proclaimed the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to ask the band to return to the stage, and I'm going to pray and close the service. Father God, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the opportunity that your word provides us it's a word that's never changed it's been holding fast and remaining steady from day one and in a world where everything vacillates in a world where everything moves high and low and is sometimes even difficult to put our eyes upon it's so refreshing to me to know that the word of god is holding fast it's standing firm and when I put my eyes upon it and when I read this scripture and I ask myself through the lens of the spirit, what am I willing to suffer for the case of faith? What am I willing to suffer for you today, Father? I pray that the, the answer would be a resounding whatever. Whatever it is, whatever is required that I might be like these early followers say if, to be found worthy in any capacity, to be found worthy to be punished for being a follower of Christ Then so be it. I'd rather be punished for being a follower of Christ then live peaceably and have nobody know what I'm standing for and we're not using our salvation to get out of jail free we're using our salvation to help people in life who are in jail already every day who is it that breaks out the captives your messengers father the angels they, they came down and they provided an opportunity to release these people not to release them to some kind of fear go run and hide in the mountains and make sure you don't get caught again no send them straight back in with a word of encouragement. Why? Because people are dying and going to hell every single day. And so this encouraging word that comes from the mouth of God, from, from the feet, blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news of the word of Christ. Father, bless, it, bless those today that are willing to do that. And if there's someone in this building or online hearing this message, and they, and they know that you're calling them, Father, I pray they pray this simple prayer this morning. Dear Jesus, come into my life. Do not stand outside of the door any longer. Come in. I receive you. I believe in you. I place my hopes, my faith, my trust in you, my Lord, my King, my Savior. Make me a servant. Make me worthy of this incredible gift of salvation. Bless you for giving your life as an offering for me. Father, we do it all and say it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.
1: I wanted to add on to something Jeff was talking about because, um, you know, you hear the, these guys, they went away, they were flogged. And you're going, geez, they were, they were joyous. But the reason they were joyous is because they knew. They knew the truth. I mean, there was no fear there at that point. It's like, hey, we know the truth. You guys knock yourselves out, but we know the truth. And as Christians, we go out, and I think sometimes we go out, and I'm always shocked at how, people really don't know the Bible, and we have the Bible now, so we can know the truth. And so when you go out, we're not holy salesmen, we're, we're called to show up and realize who we are. So I think that's a big part of sharing with people and being with people is because we know the truth. So all that to say, learn the Bible, learn what that story's about, because it's a big one. Father's Day. All right. Okay, we're going to leave you with one, um, a fun one. We've done this many times. It's an oldie, but it's a fun one. Here we go.